The story I read quite a number of years ago simply titled The Rabbi's Distress, and it goes like this. Many centuries ago, there was a well-known rabbi in Europe who was known for his wise counsel. And the way that he conveyed this is that one day a week, people would line up in a room outside of his study and go to him for the counseling and even more a kind of confession and unburdening of the soul. And he would receive the words with love and grace and offer back wisdom and healing. Well, one day it was that the line of people outside that study grew and grew and grew. And the rabbi didn't call for anyone to come in. And his students got concerned. And so they walked into the rabbi's study and they saw the rabbi with his head in his hands. Saying nothing but crying. He said, teacher, what is wrong? And still for minutes on end, he said nothing until he leapt from his place. He said, I need this community to call a fast for me and pray for me. And they did that. And for several days in a row, they prayed with him in silence. And finally, he broke that fast and he spoke. He said, when I was hearing from people who were in pain the other day, I heard a story of such awfulness, such pain, such misery that it struck me dumb. I was not able to speak. And the student said, yes, we we understand the effect that must have had on you. And that's why we needed to call the fast. And he said, no, that's not it. He said, I was so struck by this story of pain and sorrow that I could find nothing in myself, in my experience, that I could resonate with this. And he said, I asked you to pray for me because I know I must have been resisting my own darkness. I must have been resisting that which I did not want to see about myself. He yearned to see. Many of us right now in this society are learning and yearning to see. Trayvon Martin. Ferguson, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, and finally something this past week cracked open with this. This man's life. Eric Garner. The, to call it petty crime, selling loose cigarettes, is an insult to his memory. His death was captured on film. Taken down by a chokehold, which the New York Police Department says they are not supposed to use, violates their own guidelines. And this death was ruled a homicide by the medical examiner, by the coroner. And still no indictment. Something has shifted. Something may change. Reaching out 11 times, he said these words, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And no help came. And he died. He didn't die. He was killed. In difficult times when we are challenged by the pain of the world and also by our own limitations, sometimes our own unwillingness or inability to see, sometimes both like the rabbi. In times when it may be hard to see the spiritual practice of looking deeply. Of looking deeply matters utmost, not looking away. It is important to see, and I hope we are all seeing. 
Here's the thing, like a flame in the darkness. Our eyes and our heart need time to adjust. Sometimes we don't know how to see. But opening up our perception, it is the heart of all spiritual growth. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. The most famous words written in hymnology in the English language was blind, but now I see. Yesterday, I led a day-long mindfulness retreat. Mindfulness, which regardless of whatever you're reading about the fact that it's a total panacea and can make your job, your life, your weights, your everything so much better. (laughs) Mindfulness, if it is untethered from the Buddha's teachings about the three poisons, about hatred and ignorance and greed, if it's untethered from that, it just becomes another self-improvement scheme. Because you know what mindfulness means, vipassana? In the Pali language that the Buddha spoke, insight. As my practice has deepened, my own personal willingness has deepened. To look at the pain of the world and the pain and the limitations of my own heart and to not look away. Some of this I've shared with you over the last couple of years. Some of it has come up in messages. Some of it has been revealed. Some of my own changes, messages and things like 12 years a slave. And that amazing takedown that I preached a couple years ago on the so-called war on drugs, which does absolutely nothing to help, help addicts, but does an awful lot to destroy lives. The house I live in. The essays of Ta-Nehisi Coates, and if there's one thing you take out of this today, please go to theatlantic.com and read what Ta-Nehisi Coates has written. Books like The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. This has been my vow to educate my heart. I once was lost and now I'm found was blind, but now I see. Trying to anyway. These numerous sources all unpacking what it is to live in a society founded on the principles of white supremacy. Maybe it's shocking for you to hear that. Or maybe not. I hope not, because it's written right there in our founding documents. Three-fifths of a person black people were. And yes, we have made progress. But... Some of you may have read some really wise, insightful words from the comedian. Sometimes our comedians are our greatest truth tellers, Chris Rock, this past week, in which he switched the terms of the debate, how often it goes, and said, yes, we've made progress. But you know what? It's been white folks' progress. (laughs) And he goes on to say, we can still treat racism in this country like it's a style that America went through, like flared legs and lava lamps. Oh, that crazy thing we did. We were hanging black people. We treat it like a fad instead of a disease that eradicates millions of people. He concludes, you've got to get it in the lab and study it and see its origins and see what it's immune to and what breaks it down. This is the slow work of seeing 
like a soulful scientist, seeing what's there, seeing what we're working with so that we're making the darkness of our world, of our own lives and of our society visible. And yes, there are still some who will say there's nothing to see here. That's in the past. And sometimes I want to say there's nothing to see here. Look at all the progress we've made. I'm resistant. I'm not much of an activist, folks. I'm more pastor than prophet. If you've been around for a while, that's not a surprise to you. But these words, once was lost, now I'm found was blind, and now I'm seeing. I'm trying to take those to heart. See, for a long time, black folks in the society have been saying to us, I've had friends say this to me during painful conversations. We've had some of our most famous artists in this society say, the whole of the society does not see our lives. So one of the things I've been talking about over these last couple of years, occasionally I'll bring up these studies, these studies that I hope will move the conversation beyond this place of anecdote versus anecdote. Well, I was stopped at this traffic light. Well, I was too, and I'm white. I've shared studies that have been about the fact that it is demonstrated that black pain is not seen. That black people crossing the street are not seen like white people crossing the street. That a majority, at least in this study, of white folks tend to see black folks as magical. Superhumanization, which is just another fancy word of saying dehumanization. In the arts, they call this the magic Negro who comes and solves all the white folks pain. It's just another way of not seeing. And I'll share one more. With this, these kinds of studies with you, it's from a really good new book called Everyday Bias about the fact that sometimes the racism and the sense that we might be superior and our own bias is hidden more in our hearts. It's not as explicit as it was 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 150 years ago. And so there's this study which says people of all races are shown a picture of two white people fighting. One of them is armed with a knife and one of them is unarmed. And after they're shown these pictures, folks of all different races are very able to identify who was the person holding the knife and who was the person who was not. And then the study goes to a place in which they show a picture of one black man and one white man fighting with each other. And the white man has the knife. Guess who the majority of folks think had the knife when they're asked about it afterward? The answer is the black person. Bruce Springsteen put it this way in his amazing song, 41 Shots, American Skin. Amadou Diallo shot for reaching for his wallet. 41 shots. Is it in your heart? Is it in your eyes? Is it in our hearts? Is it in our eyes? It's in our air and our water and our culture, my friends. So this is a moment in which we can ask ourselves, are we blind and like the rabbi, are we willing to see that which is uncomfortable for many of us to see? This past week I posted on Facebook that I was on my day off driving around some big box stores doing a bunch of holiday shopping. And what I saw in front of me, I don't know for certain what the motivations were, but it went like this. A young African-American man 
in one of those shopping carts. There's a little child in the front waiting at a crosswalk. Waiting like so many of us waited at a crosswalk. And one car went by and didn't give him space to cross. And another car went by and another car went by. And then I stopped. I am not the hero of the story. And then when I drove on just less than a quarter mile up the road, a white woman was crossing, not with a crosswalk, and the car immediately in front of me stopped. Now, I don't know. I cannot say for certain what was in the hearts of those folks. But when I quote from you like studies that I just did, I want to say, and I do believe, That the lives of black folks unseen, it is a matter of life and death. And that is why, yes, I believe, like the hashtag in social media says, black lives matter. And sometimes the answer comes back, all lives matter. Of course. Of course. But love matters more to those who are put out from love. We can take the lesson, one of the most beautiful stories in the Western tradition of the prodigal son, which really is all about the father's love, by the way, not about the son. And this part of the story, the prodigal son who wastes his inheritance, that really doesn't accurately describe the lives of African-American folks in America. But focusing on that love and the fact that sometimes I think white folks put ourselves in the position of the other son who says, what about me? We might believe that if folks who have been suffering or struggling, black lives matter and saying that unapologetically, we might actually believe that love is a zero sum game. But here's the point of the prodigal son story. God's love. Is limitless. And exists for all of us, and especially in that story is there for those most who have been estranged and who are hurting. Our universalist vision of love is not a zero-sum game. If you get more, I get less. That's too often the way of the world, but that's not our theological heritage. We who believe that compassion, connection, and care aren't just our potential, but are our very nature, and that given these conditions where compassion, care, connection thrive, from raising a child to changing a culture, These are the conditions under which our lives flourish. And it's under these conditions that all of us are called to be a part of what's happening now. This is where I find hope, my friends. I find hope in the thousands, the thousands of especially young people, people 20 years younger than me who are taking to the streets and engaging, yes, peacefully. Disregard the media that always wants to focus on the violence because that's just another way of making us afraid. I'm not condoning the violence. But it's not the majority of what's happening out there. This is peaceful confrontation. This comes from Henry David Thoreau, civil disobedience, our tradition. This comes from Dr. King, who said that he came to believe that the people threatening the progress of his people to be treated as equals were not so much the KKK and the violent racists, but white moderates who believed in order more than justice. Ugh. (laughs) That hits me and that should hit me. And maybe it hits you. Choosing justice over orderliness is also believing what Jesus said. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the children of God. Blessed are the de-escalators, the ones who open space for connection. Those are the folks who inspire me. Some of you may have seen this, may have seen this picture. A 12-year-old African-American boy holding a sign that says, Free Hugs at a protest in Portland, and one of the Portland police officers going over to hug him. It's reported he apologized for police brutality and sharing this hug. But folks, this is not enough. I'm a sentimentalist. My favorite story is the Grinch, when his heart bursts open and it bursts all those bounds. I am a sentimentalist. I want to believe really badly. Why can't we all just get along? Shouldn't it have been so easy? Shouldn't it be so easy? So that's all right. This is a, a powerful image. But let me show you a better image. This is a man named Jerry Lore, a police officer in Ferguson, where things have been tense, where things at times have been violent, and where anger, deep, soulful anger, the epicenter of what's going on is happening. Jerry Lore is a police officer who never goes out armed to the teeth. He goes out exactly like you see him. And because of that, he has been a de-escalator. He has been able to build trust with the protesters and they do trust him. It's not making it all go away, but blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the de-escalators. And this is just yet another story, but it's not the best one I know. Here's the best one that I've read this year. It's not a picture. I posted about it on Facebook if you want to read the full story. It's the city of Richmond, California, and their police force. Change is possible, my friends. In 2007, a new police chief took over that police force, and it was rife with all kinds of violence, and it was a mess. And in 2007, in complete distinction from the surrounding cities, Richmond is not a wealthy city. It has crime. It has challenges. There is racial strife there. There has not been since 2007, since this new police officer, police chief took over, any person who has died by a police bullet. And by the way, at the same time, not a single police officer has been shot. Change is possible. And by the way, folks, also, crime is still going down there. Militarization is not the answer. Relationship is the answer. What we can learn from Richmond is that like all positive change in all of our lives, whether it's a mindfulness practice or whether it's demilitarizing our lives, strong intention and practice and dialogue and keep doing it again and keep doing it again and keep doing it again and learning. This is how we change. It means that sometimes also we are willing to have difficult conversations, compassionate and challenging conversations. I had one of these this past August when I posted something on Facebook about police brutality. And a Facebook friend of mine who is a police officer immediately shot back. The minute they need a cop, they'll call me. Not a real open welcoming to dialogue. And here's the thing. I know this guy. He's a good guy. I did the funeral for his wife who died untimely. He and I like the same music. And I simply said, I have no idea how difficult is your job is. And we went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth until he said this. I feel that our lives as police officers aren't seen, that we're misrepresented, how difficult it is. And I said, here's the thing. 
It's the same thing I hear from my friends of color. It's the same thing we've been hearing from black folks for centuries. Maybe that's what's going on here. Is we are caught in sick systems that none of us would choose. And yet in which so many of us feel stuck. He didn't say anything. He just, for the first time, liked my status. We can hate this game and still love the players. We can learn to see through the systems of fear that divide us. We can learn the truth that even as our society becomes internationally and domestically so militarized, that violent crime is dropping every single year and has been dropping for two decades. And yet we live in all this fear. This is what we need to question. And some of us are, and there are changes that are starting. The voters in California and New York City just recently passed a shift of resources. No longer just focusing on punitive measures, but actually starting to treat people within the criminal justice system, with deeper humanity, starting to shift to mental health resources, addiction resources, counseling resources. These are the ways that systems change by learning to engage our moral and spiritual imaginations and learning, learning that punishment is not justice, although sometimes it is necessary, but punishment is not justice. And too often that desire to punish is a collective form of punishment and is nothing but an expression of that deep-rooted white supremacy within our society. I am more pastor than prophet. I'm not much of an activist. I find a lot of mass rallies lack nuance. I mean, this would be my chant. What do we want? We want a contemplative awareness of our own and our world's deep wounds that reveals our hidden wholeness. Rolls right off the tongue, doesn't it? <laughs> I'm not willing to let that one go because you know, I, I'm, I might actually ink that on myself at some point because that's what I really believe. And here's the thing, because I really believe that, I believe that it's really important that those who aren't, us who aren't habitually activists, that now is an amazing time to get involved. Now is an amazing time to show up. And so I want to ask you to show up with me this week. I know not all of you want to make it. I know not all of you can make it. But I'm asking all of you to make it. For the past five or so months, our sister UU congregation, the UU Church of the Restoration in Mount Airy, helmed by Kathy Ellis, who was one of Wellspring's first employees And we helped ordain her to the UU ministry. That congregation every Tuesday night has been holding a vigil out on the street in front of their congregation in Mount Airy. Standing, as our tradition says at its best, on the side of love. Holding signs, Black Lives Matter. I'm going to be there Tuesday night for that vigil. I've changed my schedule. I've broken some commitments with folks and I've asked them, hey, this is why I'm doing it. And come along with me. Folks, come along with me. 
Let's be there together. Let's start making those connections together. And by the way, I know some of you are doing this. I'm not the one leading all this. I know some of you are doing this already. It's incredible. But this is a moment in which especially those of us who are not activists are asked to stand and be counted and to be part of the intention and the practice and the dialogue of changing this culture. Changing this culture and shifting and bending that arc. As Dr. King said, and really before him, Theodore Parker, the great Unitarian minister, said that he knows not exactly how the arc of the universe bends, but it does bend. Ultimately, he believes in the direction of justice. I want to end from these words of someone who manages to be both prophet and pastor. Thich Nhat Hanh, whose aged body will not last much longer, who sits with a brain hemorrhage in France, 89 years old. His prayer is this, and it's one of my favorites. I awaken each day 24 brand new hours before me. 24 brand new hours before me. May I see each being with eyes of compassion. May I see each being with eyes of compassion. One conscious breath for those who can no longer breathe. One conscious step. One day at a time. One step at a time. One breath at a time. Please, my friends. May we all be a part of a new day that can dawn and is waiting to bless us. Amen. May we see and may you live in blessing. May we pray together. Universalist God really is, is there any other (laughs) of a love that belongs to each and all of us. And lets us know that we are all already the beloved and all of our lives matter. May we trust that love if we feel beloved, if we have any level of privilege. May we know then that the job is not to rest already self-assured in the love that we feel is ours, but to open the eyes of the heart and see and to practice and to be diligent in that practice to stand firmly on the side of love in such a way that, as Dr. King says, liberates both the oppressed and the oppressor. That liberates all of us, not to a state that is coming up, but to the state that we already are. May we stand, may we walk, may we breathe on all the sides of love. And may we bless ourselves and bless this life. Amen.